This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 19. Isaiah 63, 7 through 19. You can find it on page 622 in your pew Bible. Isaiah 63. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see everyone this morning. Welcome. Welcome. Before I get rolling this morning, I'm going to make a, uh, I'm going to take a little bit longer than normal to make a little bit of an announcement. I want everyone, I want everyone here on Sundays to kind of know what's happening. I want us to be uh, fully aware as possible of what kind of kind of household chores Redeemer Fellowship has on Sunday mornings. Every Sunday it takes anywhere from four to eight volunteers to make worship happen. It takes two to four people to make coffee and tea and water. It takes two to four men serving on the security team to, keep, uh, to have our people be looked after. It takes hospitality greeters, it takes ushers, it takes seven people per service 
to do communion every week, four people on the prayer team every week. Redeemer Kids alone has as many as 40 volunteer opportunities to serve our kids. We easily have as many as 50 opportunities to connect with other people in our church and to serve our body, to kind of grab a shovel and be a part of what happens on Sundays. In my home, in my home, I want my kids to understand that everybody gets the opportunity to do their part. Everybody pitches in. My girls are small and still right now I'm bringing them along with dad for everything that we're doing. I'm showing, I'm demonstrating, I'm helping them understand that we all help because it's good for us, right? We need to understand what kind of family we have. I want, I want my kids to know who the crows are. I want us to be a family where everybody plays. No one sits on the sidelines when it comes to helping. And the Sunday ministry philosophy for Redeemer has always been that way as well. We've always been that way. We can't do Sundays uh, on our own. We can't do it unless everybody plays. And that's something that's good for us. It's good for us to participate. It, this place is like a family meal and not like going out to a restaurant, right? We have to set the table. We have to do the dishes. We have to fold the napkins. We have to clean up after ourselves, right? Everybody has an opportunity. I grew up in a home that never, ever had a dishwasher. It's a magical invention. Um, but when we finished eating, me and my brothers would literally sprint to the kitchen and call out, I'm drying, I'm putting away, because nobody wanted to get caught washing, right? So we traded that duty because my parents are wise people and they knew that we all needed to have that experience. And it taught me something about how to value what mom did for us every single night. It taught me something about what it looks like to cultivate gratitude and not just expect it to spring up somewhere. It taught me something about what it was like to cultivate appreciation. And I, I want us to have a kind of all hands on deck. Everyone's, everyone's a part of what we do on Sundays. And specifically, let me stop in a, in a, in a focused way and talk about Redeemer Kids. The why in Redeemer Kids is super, super important. And I want to remind us of some kind of cosmic realities that are easy to forget. The fact is, is that every single Sunday we have classrooms filled with hungry hearts, filled with lost people. We have rooms and rooms and rooms of people who haven't met Jesus yet. We have rooms and rooms and rooms of, of people full of heart soil, just waiting for the life-changing seeds of the gospel to be planted and watered and tended to. There's kids in this building's building who don't know it, but they need Jesus. They need to know what love is. They need to know what sin is. They need to know their Bibles. Our kiddos need our investment way more than they need snacks or the lessons. And the volunteers that we have downstairs, they're not babysitters. They're, the curriculum that we choose isn't random. In fact, the way that we take in and listen to parents' advice isn't some way to placate and keep the peace. It's because we care and we want to do that well. Um, yeah, if you serve in Redeemer Kids, you're tending to the development of souls and the cultivation of civilization. Does that sound like an overstatement? Because it's not. It's not at all, right? If you serve in Redeemer Kids, you're shaping the future of the kingdom of God. 
The Lord Jesus sees your work and he sees your heart. And I want to thank you. And I want every person in our body to understand that the ministry going on in our classrooms is changing lives and changing the future. So we can't do that without you. And we want to do that as well as possible. We could easily use as many as 40 volunteers every single Sunday in Redeemer Kids. We want to see some of those volunteers even be developed and become leaders. If you have a heart to take on more ownership or responsibility or even just talking about this, if it catalyzes like vision and zeal in you to participate in that, please let us know. We want to know about it. Email me, email Ben Raff, email Holly Martin, email Andrew Brantley. Let us know. We'd love to uh, help connect you with something that you love to do and something that um, all of the kiddos in our body um, are longing for, even if they don't know it. Being, uh, being here on Sundays and participating in serving does more, um, more than just get Sundays done, right? If you're new here, if you're new here, it's, it's one of the first and easiest ways to take a step forward to start to try to build community here to start to try to really invest in each other's lives. It's a context where we get to hear each other's stories. It's that first step to build community because community doesn't just come naturally. It doesn't come easy. Community is not a commodity that you can auto ship to your house. It takes work. It takes work, but it's worth it. But it's worth it. So if you want to get involved we have these at the info desk downstairs at the front entrance. You can always fill one of these out and give it to us. You can always just grab one of us on a Sunday. Um, if, you want, if you want to get involved and you want to dig in, I would love to help and we would love to help you uh, do that. So with that being said, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dig into the text this morning. So Heavenly Father, we submit our lives to you. They're not our own. We don't get to decide. We're yours. You have decided to place your steadfast love on those who fear you, on those who love you, on those who listen to you. Um, so Spirit of God, take your word and do what only your word can do. Change hearts, convict hearts, transform lives, transform people in the renewing of their minds. Let them Think differently. Wake us up. Wake us up. Comfort us. Convict us. Spirit of God, unleash power and transformation in our church, I ask, through your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, two weeks ago, I preached from Isaiah 62, and verse 6 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they, have never, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, that's us. Take no rest and give him, that's God. Give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. In that sermon, I talked about how taking focused time and effort to remember what God has done is like medicine for our hearts. I talked about how we need to remember the wonders that God has done in our lives, lest we forget. And this week, we get to practice what we preach. The rest of this chapter and into chapter 64, the prose of Isaiah kind of rises and dips and rises and falls. 
It rises up and kind of exclaims and proclaims the beauty and the magnificence of what God has done for Israel, the magnificence of his beautiful and un, um, unbelievable steadfast love. And then it kind of descends down into the challenges of the people like their own rebellion. And then it kind of ascends back up where the, the prophet gives a petition to the Lord and asks him to show up just like in Isaiah 62 and do what he's promised to do. So we're going to kind of follow that trajectory today. The verses we have to consider this morning give us an opportunity to remember. Just like we talked about two weeks ago, we'll move to remember God's goodness and glory and acts of salvation, and we'll remember our lowly estate. Places that people have, the people have sinned and failed is what we're also going to look at because like them, we have sinned and we have failed. And I don't want to just say, hey, that's okay. It's no big deal. I don't want to comfort us by minimizing our rebellious hearts because sin isn't okay with God. But today we will announce to the world and to our hearts again that God's grace is sufficient for us, that his power is made perfect in our weakness and we'll stand on the fact that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We'll face the depths of our rebellious hearts, not so that we can wallow in self-pity and not so that we can sweep sin under the rug, but so that we can open our eyes a little bit wider today to the enormous heights of God's love for us. This morning's about remembering God's greatness and goodness. That is that is the most uh, powerful thing that we can do is stare at the glory of God and we see his goodness and his greatness most beautifully in his redemptive love for sinners like you and me through Jesus Christ. So we're going to roll down this kind of country road up and down through God's steadfast love and then down into the people's rebellious hearts where we'll get a chance to examine our own and then we'll kind of ascend back up and petition to the Lord that he show up and be who he said he would be. Let's read verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So let's spend a few minutes looking back on and remembering the steadfast love of God. That phrase is in the scripture so much that it can almost just pass right through our brains without us even thinking about it. But we want to spend time appreciating it and staring at it and seeing the facets of its beauty. And I, and I don't think that we can do that if we don't know what it is, right? So let's ask, what is God's, uh, God's steadfast, unfailing love? And to answer that question, I'm going to ask a couple other questions to kind of uh, stoke some thoughts. Is God's love for his people a feeling? Is God's love validation of our own opinions? Is God's love an endorsement of our own identity? Does God love me like my pets? 
Does God love me like my kids love me, or like my fish loves me, or like my spouse loves me, or like my father loves me? What exactly are we remembering and recounting when we try to remember God's steadfast love? So let's pull it apart for just a second and talk about it as simply as we can. Right here, God's love is given to descriptors, and we see that this love is steadfast and it is abundant. So right here we have a qualitative description of the love of God and we have a quantitative description of the love of God. One quality of God's love is that it is constant. God's love is reliable. It's faithful. God's love is committed. God's love is loyal. God's love is dedicated. And God's love is dependable. You can count on it. God's love isn't fickle or fleeting like our love. God's love doesn't vacillate. God's steadfast love never gets cold feet. God's love never asks, did I marry the right person? Or am I sure I didn't make a mistake? God's love is sure and secure. But what good, what good is high quality love like this if it can be diminished? Do we have to fight over who gets the love of God? If I get this much love of God, does that mean you only get this much love of God? Is it a zero-sum game? And the answer is no, thankfully. God has unending quantities of this love to give to us. He doesn't run out. It isn't a commodity that can be depleted. We never have to fear that the love of God prices are going to skyrocket to, to a point that we can't afford it anymore because of scarcity, like gasoline. God's infinite, and his love is infinitely abundant. It never, ever, ever ends. There is no bottom Lamentations 3 says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And in Psalm 136, we read no less than 26 times that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Forever. God's love towards his people is his disposition and his action. God's love towards his people is his posture and his promise to always act on behalf of the good of his people. Like one author says, love does. Love does. It acts. It moves. God's love acts. It moves towards his people. It isn't only his commitment or only his affection, but it's God's movement of loving action. This is an important distinction. When we say we love someone, we don't always mean acting on behalf of their good, right? But God always means that. God's love is constant in commitment and God's love is abundant and God's love is action towards his covenant people. I want to make another quick distinction. First John says, God is love. But love isn't God. God is love but love is not God. We tend to take our own definition of love and say that that specific definition of love is God to us. We don't say it out loud, but we say it in our hearts, in our allegiance, 
in our affection and in what we daydream about. We want to say that our wife, the, the love our wife has for us is God. Or the love that my children have for me is God in my life. Or the true love that I might see in the movies is God. Or the love of my family is God. But that's not true. It's not true. We often take our own definition of love and we make it God. And then we read the Bible and we have the gall and the hubris to tell God to tell God that we're giving him the opportunity to prove to us that he's loving. That he can prove to us that he's as loving as the definition that we just made up. And friends, let me be loving to you right now by reminding you that it doesn't work that way. Right? It doesn't work that way. We don't read the Bible to find out if God is loving. We read the Bible to find out what love is at all. We don't read the Bible so that we can decide if God's in line with my own definition of love. We read the Bible to find out just how self-centered and crooked my definition of love is. We worship love when we want the love of friends and family and kids and spouses more than we want the love of God. And we know we're doing that or we're creeping in that direction if we're obsessed with being loved by other people or we're obsessed with worrying about being liked or we're obsessed with worrying about other people's approval of us. If God's steadfast love is set on you, Christian, nothing can harm you. Nothing ultimately can hurt you. If God's love is set upon you, then fret not. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. God's nature is his compassion and mercy and kindness and goodness expressed in action toward a creation that doesn't deserve it, right? We tend to receive feelings of love and acceptance from others, and we make that feeling God. We feel accepted or validated or comforted by others, and that feels amazing, it feels amazing. It feels so amazing that we want to organize our lives and spend all of our money, time, and resources to get more of it, right? We'll even go beyond the boundaries of God's word and sin and break the rules in order to get more of it. We'll be gluttons and drunks on the feelings of being accepted by others or the approval of others. But that feeling isn't enough to be the kind of love that God offers us. God's love is inexhaustible and God's love is constant and God's love moves in action for the good of his people. The steadfast love of God is his infinite goodness and plenitude that radiates in the triune relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity have existed in this powerful relationship of love between them. And God's love towards us is that love bursting forward and overflowing in benevolent creation, benevolent movement towards his creatures. God takes that love and he assigns it on people. He sets it on them. God's, God aims a volcanic eruption of steadfast love towards you if you love him. 
Right now, if you're in Christ, you are under a torrent of the mercy and the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God. Right now, a flood of God's steadfast love is being unleashed to you to accomplish good for you. And we need to remember that. We need to meditate on that. We need to let that soak in. And this is what Isaiah is doing. This is what he's doing. And he also takes a moment to remember the rebellion, the failure, the sin of the people. So read with me in verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So we've already seen God's steadfast love being aimed at his people. So what's happening in this moment? What's happening in this moment? God's considered to be acting like their enemy. When God's love is rejected, when God's affection and, um, and he's directed all of his goodness towards his people and they squander it in idolatry, God also acts in a certain way, right? Pastor Ray Ortland uses this illustration and I think it's helpful. You see, in that moment, God's not mocked when his love is rejected. He does something about it. If we see our kids, right? If we see our kids rebel against our loving structure and instruction for them and sprint outside of our protection into the street, into oncoming traffic, we get angry, right? And we angrily yank them them out of the street. And that is loving. That is loving. But If the same thing happens with a stranger's child and we yank them out of the street, we're not as angry. The same thing doesn't happen inside of us because we don't love them in the same way. I think that's amazing. When the object of God's love rebels, he does something about it. He disciplines the disobedience out of us. He corrects us. He changes us because we're prone to rebel. We're prone to test him or to abandon him, to test his boundaries and his limits for us. And I want us to think about how we do that. I want us to think about how we rebel and how the people have rebelled. What's Isaiah naming right here when he says that they've rebelled? We've talked about it a lot throughout the whole last year. He's talking about idolatry. And idolatry are the places in Isaiah where you see the people disobeying God and not listening to him. When you see the people not trusting God, when you see the people trusting other gods, when you see the people trusting other plans instead of God's plan for them. God longs to be God to us. That is, he longs to demonstrate his steadfast love toward us. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that moves constantly and always in our direction. And when we, when we reject that loving direction and instruction for our lives, it grieves his spirit. But how, how do we do that? What does that look like? What does it look like when we rebel against the love of God? Well, we have some examples throughout Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me, the wisdom of wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. So they honor God with what they say, but the truth is the core of who they are and what they love is far from God. 
Or again in Isaiah 30, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, so that they can add sin to sin. Here, rebellion is self-sufficiency and self-reliance. That's what rebellion looks like. And again, in 65.2 of Isaiah, it says, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices instead of following God's devices. Furthermore, in Nehemiah 9.17, it says, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And Numbers 14.9 says, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. The Lord's with us. Do not fear them. Our rebellion against God is when he offers us his steadfast love and we say, thanks, but no thanks. Our rebellion against God is when he rescues us with salvation and delivers us from a life of slavery And instead of saying thank you and falling down on our faces in worship, we grab our shackles and we actually chain ourselves back to the walls of lust or money or power or laziness. We rebel against God when we compare our lives to others and we chain ourselves to envy or jealousy. We rebel against God when we disobey and when we demand other people be punished while we demand that we get grace for ourselves. We rebel, we rebel when, after God has freed us from slavery in Egypt, we look back over our shoulder and miss it just a little bit. Like in, like in Numbers 11.5, when the people of God are complaining and they say, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. Yeah, it just cost you being in slavery, right? It cost us nothing. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. You see, they're looking back over their shoulder and they're missing that slavery just a little bit. And in those moments, our hearts are in danger of real rebellion and rejecting the provision of God, rejecting the steadfast love of God. So I want us to recognize the sequence here. God extends steadfast love and compassion. He gives us instructions that are for our joy and they're for our satisfaction and they're for our delight. And then we choose to invest all of our hope and all of our satisfaction and joy in created things or in other things like money or power or love or sex or the esteem of other people. And when we do that, we actually reject God's love. And in that moment, we are rising up in opposition against him in rebellion. Just like in the garden, just like in the beginning, God said, I'm in charge. You go subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply, but don't eat of this one tree. Every other tree is fine to eat from. Just don't eat from this one. And what did Adam and Eve do? They said, what does God know? What does he know? He just created us. We'll decide what we need. I'll decide what's good. Thank you very much. I'll decide what's good for me. I'll decide what's loving. I'll decide what's beautiful. I'll decide what's satisfying and fulfilling and worthy of my devotion and worship. God, thanks, but no thanks. 
And that's the essence of a rebellious heart. Just like in the Garden of Eden, from Genesis 3, it hasn't changed it hasn't changed from then till today. We stand up and we oppose the creator of the universe and proceed to tell him how to do his job. Or worse, we, we try to fire him and we try to take his job. We want to be God so badly, it just flares up inside of us. There's nothing we won't do. There's no next that we won't step on to get the power that we want and think we deserve. There's no one we won't hurt or even kill to get the seat that only God can have. We even reject God's provision and his protection and our relationship with him is ripped apart in the garden. And the very same lie, the very same lie from Genesis 3 is still the lie that tempts us today to rebel and to reject the love of God. The serpent came to Eve and he didn't give a treatise, right? He didn't really give that sophisticated of an argument at all. All he said was, did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? That's the temptation that tempts us to become rebels, that tempts us to stop trusting God's love and disobey instead. Did God really say that I should forgive someone over and over and over again, no matter how many times they sin against me? Did God really say that he would protect me? Did God really say that he loves me? Did God really say that obedience is good for me? Did God really say that I have to love my, Christ, love my wife like Christ loved the church? Did God really say that I need to respect my husband? Did God really say not to be anxious about anything? Did God really say love your enemies and bless, bless those who persecute you? Did God really say those outlandish things? Did he? Did he really say that? Can I just pick and choose? Can I just emphasize certain parts of the Bible and ignore other parts? Can't I fudge the numbers just a touch? Can't I blur the lines just a little? I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. Right now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that can't be right. Because that doesn't sound like a rebellious heart. If I was to describe my daughter's rebellious heart right now, that would sound much different, right? Much more energy. You're thinking, that doesn't sound like an uprising. That doesn't sound like mutiny. I mean, doesn't God know how to run a successful collaborative organization? Doesn't God like getting some constructive criticism? Isn't God open to feedback? And the answer is no. No, he's not open to feedback. He's not open to a SWOT analysis of how he decides to run the universe. Did God really say is the whisper of insurrection that's responsible for the fall of mankind. That's the shape of the serpent's temptation aimed at you today. In order to get you to rise up and stiffen your neck against God and oppose him. It's oppositional because it's prideful. It's saying we know better. Unbelief is prideful. That's pr the, 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 the pride inside of our disobedience is why it's oppositional to God. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Our rebellion is seen in our idolatry and it grieves the spirit of God. And this kind of rolls us into the next movement of today that I want to highlight. I just want to say we're not lost, right? We can appeal just like the prophet does. For the remainder of our chapter, he makes petition. Isaiah recounts the love of God. He looks back and remembers. And then he names the sin and failure and rebellion of the people. And then in in an act of faith, Okay, In an act of faith, he appeals to God, who is loving and compassionate, to come and do something about it. Isaiah appeals to God to come do something about the people's rebellious hearts. The remainder of the chapter is Isaiah appealing to God to act in accordance with that love and mercy. This is the relentless kind of prayer that was instructed back in chapter 62, to to not give God any rest until he does what he said he's going to do. Verse 11, there's these questions that begin. Isaiah begins asking this question. He says, where are you? Where's the God who acts? Where are you working for our good? Verse 12 kind of sums this up as it says, where are you who caused your glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make an everlasting name for himself? Where are you who led the people out of Egypt and gave them rest? God, where are you? Where are you? We need you. Would you do it again now? Where's your deep compassion and love? Where's your zeal? And Isaiah even says, where are you? You who are our father. You're our father. Verse 16 says, for you are our father. Even though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. And there's this kind of separation that begins to happen in the next few verses where we start to see these phrases that distinguish what the people look like and what their true identity is. So they are the people who God has set his his love on, and yet at the same time, they're not looking like those people. They're not looking like those people. Here the prophet's acknowledging how far they've fallen. In essence, he's saying, Dad, I know I don't even look like one of your kids anymore. I know that I'm unrecognizable as someone that has your love set upon them. My brothers and sisters wouldn't even recognize me, but you're still my father and I still need you. I still need your compassion. I still need your zeal. This is a cry from the bottom of the prophet's soul for mercy. For mercy. This is the kind of cry where someone realizes that the truth is is that there really isn't such a thing as rock bottom. Human beings can always keep falling down further and further and further into darkness until sometimes God lets them have what they're asking for. That's, this, this is a full acknowledgement that unless God acts, we're doomed. We'll continue to not look like part of his family. The ship of our lives is sunk unless the God of the universe intervenes with his steadfast love. In order to understand the kind of deceitfulness of sin, I want us to pay attention to verse 17. Verse 17 says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? 
I want, to ask, I want us to ask the question of what's happening here because I want to say that God isn't forcing them to sin and God isn't forcing them to wander and harden in their hearts because God's not the direct cause of what's going on because the people are choosing to do these things, right? They're willing participants. They're choosing to wander. They're choosing sin. They're choosing to harden their hearts. No one twisted the arm of the people to get them to worship idols, The people ran after idols willingly and joyfully. And we know that because no one twists our arms to to run after idols. No one twists our arm to love other things in our lives more than we love God. No one's pushing us and forcing us to do that. We do it willingly. The truth is that we sin because we want to. It feels good in the moment. We do it willingly. One commentator points out that God's discipline often comes in the form of letting us have what we keep asking for. So let this be a warning to us. There's an attitude that we're tempted to have, and that attitude is that I can sin and wander and disobey and just ignore God today, and then someday off in the undefined future, I'll come back to him. And that's risky, There's a presumptuous attitude that we can live in the throes of sinful pleasure and put off repenting and turning back to God. I don't care if it's the pleasure of drugs or illicit sex or if it's the pleasure of envy and bitterness and self-righteousness. Like I just said, all sin tempts us with a certain kind of alluring that has enjoyment involved. Even things we hate like worry and envy. Even things we hate about ourselves like jealousy. There's something about it that pays. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're holding on to a sinful attitude and counting on the goodness of God to show up later, then you're in a dangerous spot. God may just let you have your bitterness or he may allow you to run off in disobedience and sin. He may allow you to have the thing that you're loving more than you're loving him. And the destruction that will come and be caused from that will be painful and it will be great. I know that from the Bible and I know that from personal experience. There's a verse that's always, always haunted me before I came back to the church. It's in Hebrews 12, 17, and it says in talking about Esau and Jacob, Jacob being the oldest, so he should get all the blessings of being, or Esau is the oldest, so he should get all the blessings of being the oldest. And instead of taking those blessings, he sold them to his brother for a bowl of soup. And Hebrews 12, 17 says, you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears. And Pastor John Piper says about this verse, the problem with Esau in chapter 12 was not that grace and forgiveness were unavailable but that he had sinned himself into a condition where he could no longer welcome them as more precious than his bowl of Cheerios or oatmeal or pottage. He loved this world so much and he loved his sin so much that the freeness and the all-sufficiency of grace couldn't even be seen or felt or received as more precious than sin. And the application for us is jarring and it's worth acknowledging. It's worth self-reflection and saying, if you don't look like you're a son or part of the community of the household of God, then take stock, repent 
Answer the kind invitation to return to him where he has storehouses and storehouses and storehouses of grace and mercy and powerful, life-changing, loving kindness. Come back and repent. Look at verse 19. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. So if you find yourself continuing to behave like God isn't your father, or if you find yourself right now in a situation or a pattern of living that you're, you know that God despises, or if you know that you've been nursing and cherishing kind of like hateful fantasies or bitterness or jealousy or rage, or if you get some kind of satisfaction from your anxiety and worry and you don't know how to let it go, I'd appeal to you today to turn back to the love of God Turn back to him for mercy and forgiveness. He's waiting with open arms. If you recognize a pattern of like external sin in your life, or you recognize a pattern of internal sin in your life that makes you not look like you're called by the name of God, reject it. Reject it. Turn back, repent, and turn again to Jesus this morning. If you find yourself in a spot of rebellion, maybe saying to yourself, Did God really say? Did he really say? If you find yourself saying that so that you don't have to obey him or so that you don't have to listen to him, I want us all to remember this morning that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the prideful. And and you don't have to clean all of that up to be recognized as a son or a daughter of the living God. You don't make yourself right and then come to him so that he can endorse your rightness. You come to him messy and dirty and broken with tons and tons of need. The storehouses of grace and mercy and kindness mirror the depths of neediness that we have. And that's how he likes it. That's how he likes it. So through Christ, that's the doorway to the storehouses of God's abundant, steadfast love for you. So I'd ask you this morning, like, turn to Jesus. He's inviting you this morning to let go of any chains that you would use, that you would be tempted to wear and take his freedom instead of those. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he's the only person who can cleanse you of your sin. Look to Jesus because he alone can offer you forgiveness. Look to Jesus and lean all of your weight on the steadfast love of God because it endures forever, forever. Every week, every week we celebrate this truth through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ when we take communion. When we take communion, we proclaim to the world that we can't do it, that everything bad about us has already been said. There's no reason to posture. There's no reason to pretend. Every week we take communion because we want more and more and more and more of God's steadfast love. We want every drop that we can experience. The way we take communion here is we, we have stations down here in the front, one to my right, one to my left, and one in the middle that is a single serve station. And then we have a station up in the balcony as well. We, we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. 
I'm going to pray for us, and servers are going to come forward in a second. If your hope is in the steadfast love of God through Christ, you're a Christian, and we invite you to come and take communion. And if it isn't, man, I, I beg you to reconsider if what you have can make the kind of claims that God can make. Like, the kind of confident claims that God makes about his love for you that doesn't run out, if you can make those same kind of claims about whatever you're trusting in instead of Jesus, I'd invite you to question that or examine that. We'll have people over here to the left who'd love to pray for anybody in here who wants prayer. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then you all can come up when you're ready. So Lord Jesus, you died. You lived perfectly you died a sinner's death and then you were risen from the dead um, in victory over death and Satan and evil. We, we, we celebrate that. We proclaim that. We name that. We stand on that. Would you stoke in us kind of a fresh awareness of your love for us? Would you help us Help us uh, repent even of unbelief. Like, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to believe that you love me constantly. That you're constantly dumping your love on me and your goodness to me. I want to believe that more. Increase our capacity as a body of believers to experience the full weight and power of the steadfast love of God. Convict us. Comfort us, grow us, transform us. Even as we practice again, we practice again just proclaiming your, uh, your broken body and your shed blood. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come when you're ready.